You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Scripture for our message this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, I encourage you to turn to 2 Peter. Second Peter 1, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This is God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray now you'd help us as we consider your word, that your spirit who inspired these words would lead us into the truth of them, that we would know them to be true, that we would embrace them with all of our heart, and that we would resolve by your grace, with your help, to obey what your word says for your glory, for our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last Sunday a new series in this first part of 2 Peter, a series called Make Every Effort. Make Every Effort, the Duty and Promise of Spiritual Growth. Spiritual growth is a duty. Peter says, make every effort, strive, work. It's a duty. Make every effort toward spiritual growth. But that duty comes with a great promise. We saw last week that spiritual growth is possible. Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Spiritual growth is possible. It brings freedom. Verse 4 talks about how we escape the corruption that's in the world. Sin is always bad for us, no matter what it holds out and promises to us up front. It's always bad for us. It enslaves us, and spiritual progress and growth moves us toward freedom. 
Further, in verse 8, we see that it enables us to be spiritually productive. If these things are ours and are increasing, it keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. And finally, it holds out the promise of assurance. Because where we see true spiritual growth, we know there's true spiritual life. And it encourages and strengthens our souls. Make every effort. The duty and promise of spiritual growth. This morning, we consider supplement your faith with knowledge. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, first of all, with virtue. We considered that last week. With moral excellence. And then virtue with knowledge. We live in extraordinary times when it comes to knowledge. On January 8th of 1815, the United States Army fought a major battle with the British Army, a battle that came to be called the Battle of New Orleans. It's a huge victory for the Americans and for their general, future President Andrew Jackson. The Americans suffered a couple hundred casualties, the British a couple thousand casualties. It was an overwhelming victory for the Americans. This was the War of 1812. Well, actually, it was after the War of 1812. Over two weeks earlier, American and English officials had met in Belgium and signed a treaty ending the war December 18th of 1814. The war was over. The United States and Great Britain were technically at peace. But news of the peace was still on its way to America somewhere on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Over two weeks had passed. Several thousand casualties suffered in a battle because they didn't know the war was over. We can, we can hardly conceive today of such limitations on our knowledge. We can watch events happening on the other side of the world in real time. I expect my phone to answer any questions I might have about anything immediately. I shouldn't even have to go to the trouble of typing my question into my phone. I should be able to talk to my phone and have it talk the answer back to me. We forget quickly, I think, how short a period of time it was that this was inconceivable to us. When I was in high school, which feels like the day before yesterday, this kind of knowledge availability was inconceivable to us. Our kids couldn't imagine the world being any different. We live in extraordinary times when it comes to knowledge. Economic historians tell us we've moved successively from a, a hunter-gatherer economy to an agricultural economy, to an industrial economy not really that long ago, and now what is often called a knowledge economy. Knowledge has become perhaps our greatest economic resource. Peter's telling us here in 2 Peter 1 that knowledge is one of our greatest spiritual resources as well. Supplement your faith. Make every effort to add to your faith knowledge. But we need to be aware up front that there are at least two sort of opposite dangers that we face when it comes to knowledge. 
Here's the first one. The temptation to worship knowledge. The temptation to worship knowledge. I leave a marker here. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul, the apostle, is traveling on his second missionary journey. He's gone through Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. He's come down to Athens, a center of Greek culture and civilization, and he's waiting there for Silas and Timothy, two of his associates, to come and join him. Look at Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Well, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, so Paul goes into this environment and he, he encounters these philosophers and these thinkers and these talkers and, and what they love to do is go into the Areopagus, the marketplace, and discuss new things, new ideas, new knowledge. They boasted in that. They were eager for that. They were proud about that. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians, Corinth is just a little ways from Athens, and also a major center of Greek culture, how the, how the Greeks, like how they, they were consumed with knowledge, consumed with wisdom. If you wanted to be esteemed by them, you had to show yourself smart, wise, and in the know. Peter taught, or Paul talked, as we saw earlier in Corinth, how he came and said, I'm not coming under those terms. I'm just going to come and know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. But here in Athens, Paul encounters these pagan thinkers who love and obsess about knowledge. They don't respect you if you don't know something. They don't want to hear you unless you have something new to say. They, I think we could say, they, they worship knowledge. Well, we face that temptation too. It goes way back in the church. In the, very second, in the second century, so shortly after the church starts, we see the rise of heresies. One of them is called Gnosticism, from, from the Greek word uh, for knowledge, gnosis, right? It's a special kind of knowledge. The Christians or the people who are really in the know get this special knowledge revealed to them from God or from the cosmos. And we're the ones in the know. We worship knowledge. We boast and pride ourselves in it. It comes up in any, all sorts of contexts. In 1 Corinthians 8, there's argument and division in the Corinthian church. Can we eat food offered to idols or can we not? And Paul, in discussing that, says, hey, look, you know that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs people up. I know. I understand. I'm in the know. And, and the truth is we can puff ourselves up about knowing all sorts of things. I mean, maybe it's 
big ultimate philosophical questions about the meaning of life and the nature of truth and things like perhaps they might have talked about in the philosophical schools of ancient Greece. But for most of us, it's not going to be that. It's going to be other things. We, we're in the know. We understand. Uh, it might not be ultimate questions. It might be local questions. I know people who are deeply committed to knowing everything that's going on in their social environment. And you talk to them and they know, well, did you know so-and-so and did you know, and did you know this and did you hear? Because, because they love to know what's going on in their circles around them. They take pride in it. That's what they know. Sometimes it's specialized things. Some people are incredibly proud of their knowledge of sports trivia or historical or trivia or what's going on in the world of politics. Knowledge easily puffs up. Now, the answer is in ignorance, of course. But we've got to take care as we think about adding knowledge to our faith that we don't begin to worship knowledge, that we don't begin to, to find our identity and our significance or build our pride or sense of ourself on, look how much I know. And we could take Paul, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, as our cue. He shows up to Corinth, a place that esteems wisdom, arguments, and knowledge, and says, I'm not going to use that. Paul could incredibly well-educated, incredibly intelligent. He shows up and says, I'm just going to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Because I don't want you to worship knowledge. I don't want you to embrace this because look how smart Paul is. I think I'll connect myself with him. Look how wise he seems to be. I think I'll embrace what he's saying. He just wants to hold before them Christ and him crucified. We don't want to worship knowledge. But the opposite danger is there too. The temptation to trivialize knowledge. In the early 1800s, there was a series of uh, spiritual revivals, both in England and in the United States. And one of the reactions that fueled those revivals was what felt by many people to become kind of a cold kind of formalism. The church is too focused on theology. It's too focused on knowledge. It's too focused on its traditions and its rituals. And there was, there was some truth to that. And so they saw these revivals as kind of warm and we're, this deep sort of experiential, spiritual revival. It corrected a real overemphasis, but, but it began, and we continue to deal with this down to the present day, an overemphasis on my experience over knowledge and truth. What's true in the spiritual life? Well, my experience is, you see that in things like, Statements like, well, I have no creed but the Bible. Now, previous generations extended incredible effort to draft statements of faith and creeds carefully worded to capture the truth of the Bible. But over time, it's like, well, I, my creed is the Bible and whatever I happen to think or believe about the Bible, a kind of carelessness toward knowledge. You have religious experience in some corners of the church. Uh, one that came up a couple decades ago it was called the Toronto Blessing or the Laughing Revival. And the height of that spiritual revival was the laughter that people engaged in. And how would you argue with it? Because that was their experience. We say, no, it's, the Bible leads us not to expect that, isn't it? There can be a, an opposite to, to worshiping knowledge can be the temptation to trivialize knowledge. It's not what we know, it's what we experience or feel. That's dangerous too. I mean, look how Paul goes on here in Athens. Look at verse 22, the next verse. 
He says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along, observed the objects of your worship, idols in other words, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Well, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. They need to know. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, literally of not knowing, God overlooked. The time of not knowing God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, look, I know you're religious. I know you've got a religious impulse to see altars everywhere. I even saw one to the unknown God. He said, but you need to, now you need to know. See, God overlooked in the past not knowing. But there is a God who created the world and who sustains it. He's not served by human hands like he needs anything. He doesn't need you to build altars to him or build idols for him. Mm -mm. He overlooked that in the past. He overlooked when you didn't know, but now he's fixed a day and he's going to judge the world based on a man, Jesus Christ. And he's confirmed that by raising him from the dead. You can't follow God without knowledge. There's things you must know. So we don't want to... We don't want to worship knowledge as though knowledge is the answer for us. My knowledge is the path to my, you know, my self-achieving or actualizing myself. It's not knowledge is what sets me apart. But we don't want to trivialize it either. There's things that we must know, as Peter or Paul rather makes clear here in Athens. Peter's telling us knowledge is a vital spiritual resource. So, so what is a healthy pursuit of knowledge? look like. If we're going to make every effort to supplement our faith with knowledge, what will that effort be? Well, let me give you four things, four kinds of knowledge that we need to aim for. Four things. Here's the first. The first one is knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. But we need to be careful here too because we mean something more than just finding out information about God. Uh, Kelly has a cousin named Nick um, who is a doctor. And years ago, he was studying to get into med school, and Nick's a really diligent guy, and I'm sure he's a great doctor. But I remember hearing that as he was going through college and doing all the things, all the prerequisites, trying to get ready to take the test to get himself into medical school, that he had this strict schedule, five hours every day, eight in the morning, one in the afternoon, Every day, study for, I think it's the MCAT, the test you take to go to medical school. Eight o'clock in the morning, one o'clock every day. Discipline, building his knowledge, growing his knowledge. I want to know everything I need to know to take this test. But you know, it's interesting. It, it could have been the case, I don't think it is, but it could have been the case that Nick actually hates medical knowledge. 
He could have little interest in the biology of it, the care of it, how all of that works. It, it could have just been the case that that's what he had to do to get into med school. He just wanted people to call him doctor. He wanted to collect a doctor's paycheck. No real interest in medical knowledge, but he worked at it because it's what he had to do to get him where he wanted to be. Similarly, someone might pursue knowledge of God for some other reason than actual love of God. In fact, it happens all the time. There are professors in colleges and divinity schools all over the country, probably all over the world, who teach and read and write books about the knowledge of God in the Bible, but who don't believe in him and who don't love him and haven't given their lives to him. Their job, their business, their path in the world is to know about God in the Bible. But they actually don't submit to him or love him or worship him. It could happen to us. We might decide we want the knowledge of God without actually loving God. Maybe we just want to be seen by our friends and fellow church members as people that know a lot about God and know a lot about the Bible and are able to answer every question. We're looking for more here than just being good at Bible trivia when we talk about the knowledge of God. Because, see, knowledge in the Bible is deeply relational. It's deeply relational. That shouldn't surprise us. I, I mean, think, suppose I ask you this question. Do you know the president? And you'd say something like, well, I know about the president. I know of him. I mean, I don't know him personally. I know of him. I know things about him, but I don't know him like I know, say, my brother. I know my brother. What we mean there is, do you have a relationship? Not do you merely know facts about him, but do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? When the Bible talks about knowing God, it often means it in that kind of deeply relational way. Let me give you some examples. Amos chapter 3, talking about Israel, God says of Israel, You only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. Now the truth is, God knows about the Chinese people, and he knows about the Native American people, and he knows about the Sub-Saharan African people. He, he knows of all the people in the world. But what he's saying when he says, of you alone, have I known of all the peoples of the earth, what he means is, you, I know you. We have a particular kind of relationship, a covenant relationship. God has said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He does, it's not just that he knows of them. He knows them in, in relationship. And Jesus, similarly, Matthew chapter 7, he says in harrowing words, he says of certain people, he says, I never knew you, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. It's not that he doesn't know who they are. It's like, I don't recognize you. He knows they're workers of lawlessness. He says, I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. You depart from me. Or maybe most clearly, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. That's a relationship. He didn't just know of Eve. There's a relationship there. So, so when Peter talks here about adding to our faith knowledge, he's not merely talking about you need to know more facts, but rather you need to grow in knowing a person in relationship. When he talks about salvation as knowing, 
He means something very much like just the gospel message itself. Back in 2 Peter, verse 1. In 2, he says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and peace that comes to them, it comes through their knowledge of Jesus, not facts, but in fact a relationship. Or look in 2 Peter 2, verse 20. He says, if, for if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, how do they escape the sinfulness of the world? Through their knowledge of Christ, by which he means their relationship to God through the good news of the gospel. Their salvation is a knowing of Jesus, a coming into relationship with him. Perhaps most clearly, look at Philippians chapter 3. This is a well-known passage, but it's, it's really remarkable. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible it may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I'll tr I'd trade anything for the knowledge of Christ. Again, he doesn't mean trivia. He doesn't mean bare facts. He doesn't mean less than facts. He means a growing relationship with Christ that he's sharing in his life and sharing in his death, that someday he may rise to eternal life with Christ. Paul says, I count everything else as trash compared to knowing and having this kind of relationship with God through Christ. We want to grow in our knowledge of God. Sure, facts about him, truths about him as we discern them in his word and books that help us understand it, but, but mostly what we mean is in a relationship. We want to know him. Secondly, knowledge of God's word. The big issue in 2 Peter is false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1, talks about how false prophets came and misled people, just like there will be false teachers among you. And then at the end of 2 Peter, in verse 15, he says, "'Count the patience of our Lord as salvation.'" Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There's some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. False teachers will come. They will try to lead you astray. And Peter says, no, you, you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will come and twist the words of Scripture. They will lie and deceive and manipulate you with God's Word. But you need to grow in the knowledge of Christ, which means growing in your understanding of God's Word. It's remarkable how big an issue 
in the New Testament and in the early church false teaching is and how small an issue it seems to be to us generally in the 21st century church as though false teaching was a problem then but not now and there are lots of reasons for that there is a modern despair of knowing what's true how can we know what's true it's just your opinion just your perspective just my opinion just my perspective there's lots of reasons for that but it's not that the problem has gone away you know, the, the heresies and the false teachings just get more and more sophisticated more and more clever and we become unfortunately just less and less concerned about it we have to know God's word we identify false teaching by knowing true teaching. So Peter would encourage us, as he encourages these people throughout 2 Peter, to come to know God through his word. The end of chapter 1 is all about how, hey, look, we were there. We saw Jesus on the mountain. We know. We know how God is honored and glorified. I and mean, we know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but men spoke as they were carried along by God and his spirit. We need to grow in the knowledge of God's word. Third, the knowledge of God's will. What is it that God wants for us? I don't mean so much, like, what are the answers to the big questions in my life? Who should I marry? What should I study when I go to college? Should I take this job or not take this job? Where should I live? Those are important questions, but I don't mostly mean that. I mean, what is it that God, how is it that God wants us to live? There's an interesting verse in Romans chapter 10 talking about the Jews. Paul's countrymen and he says of them they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge they're passionate about God he says they really care but not according to knowledge they don't see or understand the truth about what God is doing in Jesus so they're zealous Paul knows because that was him right Paul was zealous for God as he took and persecuted the church and threw people into prison and had them executed and did everything he could to ravage the church. Paul was zealous for God, but he'd say, not according to knowledge. I was working for him, but not in the way he wanted me to. A zeal for God, but, but according to knowledge. In Colossians 1, Paul prays for that church and says, so from the day we heard, we haven't stopped praying for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Part of the knowledge that we need to grow into, that we need to make every effort toward is, God, how do you want me to live? What kind of life are you looking for from me? What should I love? What should I be committed to? What should I be focused on? What pleases you? What's worthy of the gospel that you've called me with? So we need to grow in our knowledge of God's will. And that, of course, is closely tied with the previous point. We grow by growing in our knowledge of God's word. What is it that God wants from me? And here we see also Paul prays for them. We're praying that God will show this to you. That God will make it clear to you how it is that he wants you to live. Well, fourth and finally, knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of ourselves. We could talk about this for a really long time. Uh, 
Let me say a couple things. You know, the ancient Greeks had a saying. It was widely known. It was carved in stone and the altar at the temple of Apollo in Delphi, the, the main Greek religious site. The phrase was, know thyself. Know thyself. Socrates picked up on this with his famous maxim, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. How well do we know ourselves? Paul says something really interesting in Romans 7. He says, I, I don't understand, literally I don't know, my own actions. He says, I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul says, I, I don't know my own actions. I don't understand myself. There's things I want to do, things I know I should do. I don't do them. And there's things I know I shouldn't do and I really don't want to do. And yet I do them. I don't understand. I don't know my own actions. You see, it's competing motivations, competing desires in conflict in his own life. One of the ways I think we need to grow is in our knowledge of ourselves. Now, we're going to need to do that. We're going to do that from a mindset and a framework that, that needs to be informed by God's Word. Uh, mo the modern world, uh, psychology, all these things will offer us different frameworks to think about who we are. But in light of what God's Word says, we need, we need to probe into why do I do that? So, for instance, in, in this marriage study that will begin next week in our together groups, it, it'll look at things like we have conflict in our marriage. Why? That makes me angry. And, and leads me to respond in this negative, relationship-damaging way, why do I do that? And, of course, what I want to say is, well, I do that because she, whatever. But that's not why. I do that because I want something, need something, demand something, feel I'm owed something, right? We need, to, we need to ask that next question, probe into that next issue in the light of the wisdom and truth of God's Word. Let me give you just one example of something that the New Testament wants us to know. Let me read these few verses in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's praying for the church. He says, For this reason I, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul prays here in strong terms that God would give them strength to know and understand just how much God loves them. It's a powerful thing in our lives to really know and really embrace how much God loves us. How, how might our spiritual lives be strengthened if we know ourselves to be loved by God. And we could talk about that for a long time. We're going to know ourselves in light of God's truth and His Word. So, 
What's Peter getting at here? We need to supplement our faith with knowledge. We need to make every effort to do so. We don't stumble into knowledge. We wish we did. We wish it came easy. It's like wishing in college you could sleep with your textbook under your pillow and absorb all the information. We wish wish there was a quick path to knowledge, but it takes effort. And we need to, as 2 Peter 1 told us, we need to increase. We need to increase in knowledge. We don't expect perfection. We won't know everything, but we need to increase. What could we do? What could we pursue this week to begin to grow in knowledge? First of all, I'm not sure why that's a question mark, but read. First of all, read, particularly God's Word. When we read, we grow in knowing Him because we are listening to Him. We're listening to what He has to say. Now, there's lots of things you could read to be helpful with this. You could read books of theology, devotionals, many resources that will help us grow in our knowledge of God. But priority, pride of place, must go to God's Word itself. If you don't have a a reading plan, well, first of all, you probably won't read much if you don't have a reading plan. But let me encourage you, we put together a reading plan called Learning Christ Together. There's uh, sheets out on the lobby, uh, in the Welcome Center in the lobby. There's, it's written in your bulletin. I encourage you to read through with us this Learning Christ Together. We just want to read in God's Word. We come to know Him as we listen to Him. That's how we get to know people, isn't it? That's how we grow in relationship. People that never talk don't really get to know each other. Secondly, think. Think. We don't want to just read, as valuable and important as that is. We want to stop and think. We want to ask questions of ourselves and of the text and what we're reading and consider what the answers to those things might, uh, might be. We want to, and maybe in that sense a better word, is to meditate and think carefully and prayerfully about what God is saying. We're asking questions of the text, of Him, of His Word. What does this mean? What does it mean for me? And third, finally, I want to pray. When we read, we listen to God. When we think, we, we question in God. When we pray, we talk to Him. We talk to Him. That kind of talking and listening is vital to relationships. These are keys to growing in Christ. You can begin this week. This week, it's not complicated. You won't finish this week, though. I would be clear about that. You may start this week and and never stop in this life to grow in knowledge by reading God's Word, by thinking and meditating on it, and then speaking to Him about it in prayer. And Peter closes this whole letter, 2 Peter 3, team, but grow Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make every effort to supplement your faith with knowledge. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. We we need strength, motivation, encouragement to make the effort required to grow in our knowledge of you. Father, you're not hiding from us. You're not hiding or holding back. You're, you're, you're not asking us to climb mountains and kill ourselves in the process of trying to find you as though you're secret. And you've made yourself known to us. In your word, 
and chiefly in your son. And so I pray that we would take steps this week to add to our faith knowledge. That we wouldn't worship knowledge, we wouldn't despise it, but that we would long to really know you, who you are, what you've done, what you're like, how much you love us, and what you promise us in the gospel. Our Father, I pray that you'd grow us in our knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we move toward the, the Lord's table here, just thinking about a funeral and funeral dinner that I was at recently. We go to funerals and we go to funeral dinners to remember uh, loved ones who've passed away. And so we sat at a funeral dinner here just not that long ago and thinking about and remembering the person who had passed and is gone. The Lord's Supper is a little bit like that. We partake of this together. It's a meal of a sort. And as we do so, we remember someone who is gone, who has passed, who has died. But of course, this meal is different. We don't just remember the one who has passed and who has died. We remember one who is coming again. And so we partake of the meal soberly as we consider his great sacrifice and love, but we partake of it also joyfully because we know that he's with us by his spirit and that he's coming again, Lord, may it be soon, to be with us and take us to be with him. This is a meal for people who know Jesus. People who are in a relationship with him. Not perfect people, none of those here. Not people that have their act entirely together, who know everything that there is to know, every fact or detail or piece of trivia, but for people who've given their lives to him, who know him in a profound way as Savior and Lord. If you're here like that this morning, I encourage you to share in this meal with us. If you're not this morning, I would encourage you not to because the most important thing for you this morning is not to partake of this meal, but to come to know Jesus in true, genuine, saving faith. And so I would encourage you, as the rest of us partake of the meal, for you to right there, right now, give yourself, give your life, give your heart, your future entirely to Jesus, trusting in him. He has died in your place, taken the punishment that your sins deserve. He's risen again to life so that if you know him and are in a relationship with him by faith, he'll forgive your sins and give you eternal life with him forever. So man, would you come as we prepare to take the